You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Bible's open to, uh, to Matthew 5 today. We're looking at verses 31 and 32. We'll also be going to a few other passages in Scripture on what is a, uh, another, another easy topic. No, no, it's not. No, another important topic, but another topic that Jesus has decided for us uh, today and one that we are faithfully seeking to be faithful to. So I just want to remind you all, again, uh, we are entering into enemy territory in a big, big way. Uh, the amount of lives, marriages, families that have been devastated through sin. And um, Jesus wants to talk about that and just all the complicating factors that exist too. So we need his help so much. Man, I need his help so much. And so I'm going to pray. We're going to live our theology of dependence. And I would ask that you would join me uh, as we do that. Again, each week, Lord, this is so necessary. I just love praying to you because it, it just it's true. It's real. Lord, help, help, help. God, help. We cry out to you, Lord. We cry out to you. Would you give strength Would you teach? Would you exhort, Lord? Would you make sense of your word and lives? Hundreds and hundreds of situations, Lord. So many, so complicated. And yet you will bring simplicity and clarity. I beg you for that today. And you will help us, Lord, to be instructed in what we're about to do. Father needs you. Jesus Christ needs you. Holy Spirit needs you. Um, Would you change hearts and lives today? Please, please, oh God, would you do that? And would you help your servant now, just in all his weakness and frailty to be used on some level uh, to be honor you, we pray. So we seek you now, and we are expectant that you will answer. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Okay, so we've had a couple of weeks in God's Word that have been pretty serious. That continues today, as we said. I consider this to be a bit of a trilogy today. Uh, we had anger two weeks ago, Pastor Nathan, such a good job. Lust last week, and now, hey, let's talk about divorce today. All right, we're going to do that. Uh, an important topic, obviously a very relevant one, Uh, in our day as well. Just before we get into that, um, I want to remind us, um, we have an immense battle for truth in our day. There's an onslaught against truth, maybe as much as ever in our nation, in the day that we live. And so in a world where truth is so under attack, um, I think a very, very important question for us to ask is, um, where does our authority come from? In the midst of all the voices and all the messaging and all the confusion, we need to have an authority above us outside of us. So I want you to to ask yourself that question. Where does your authority come from? In other words, how do we know what to believe? Like with all the millions of messages, and maybe more than that, and all the different opinions, and all the stuff that's happening, all the pressure, how do we know what to believe? Uh, Who or what is our true authority? And listen, that, that, that question is very, very important because it has eternal implications. Where you and I derive our authority from will determine... Really, it will determine life and death and where we spend eternity. Where does your authority come from? Is your authority from the culture? Like, like where do you get your marching orders from? Is your authority the culture? Is your authority celebrity? Is your, is your authority academic theory, which is very popular today? Is your authority just public, public opinion? Any genuine Christ follower right now, uh, having those questions asked, will have an emphatic no as an answer to those proposed suggestions. It's absolutely essential that we continually remind ourselves in a world of tossing waves, like just cultural upheaval, that our anchor, our authority, is the Bible. Our anchor, our authority, must be God 
And of course, God speaks through his word. Again, again, always remember, some of you are new to the church, some of you are new to the Christian faith. The one tangible thing that God has given to us as his church is this, right here. This is the one thing we can hold. We have the Holy Spirit by God's grace, that salvation, genuine conversion, okay? The only tangible thing we hold in our hands is the very book that he has written. I suggest we read it. Like, I think that's pretty important. And so let's always be mindful of that reality because the Bible then represents the authority of God upon our lives. Many, many people around us are deriving their authority from fallen, sinful, Christ-hating sections of elite society. And we have to be very, very, again, careful. It's scary even to go there because what you have, as Tozer said, one fallen head upon another fallen head instructing us towards death. They do not know. They don't know the truth. They don't know Christ. They don't understand. And if that's where our authority is coming from, we're in huge trouble. So it can't be. It's got to be from the one who's perfect, the one who's awesome, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent God, the holy one. We must know what he has to say, again, more than anything else, obviously, because in the end, his words will remain forever. So all that to say this, and that's an important little kind of preamble for us as well. When it comes to the subject of divorce, which we unpack today, what are we to believe then? All the different messaging in our world, what are we to believe? Well, we're to believe what the Bible says about divorce. Then the next question then naturally is, well, what does the Bible teach us then about divorce? I'm glad you asked because that's our sermon title today. It's that, what does the Bible teach us about divorce? What we're going to do is we're going to take this, the, the subject that Jesus raises today in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, and we're going to um, use the opportunity for a wider teaching of the New Testament on the subject of divorce and a bit of a systematic approach. So today is more of a, a teach than a preach, okay? But it's very, very important. We'll have a little more content maybe than normal, a few more passages we're looking at, but man, uh, it is absolutely essential that we are totally clear on what the Bible teaches on this very important subject, again, of marriage, divorce, and uh, remarriage as well. So let's start with the context or the text in front of us, Matthew 5, verse 31. Again, we'll stay here for a bit, and then we'll move on as well, okay? Verse 31, Jesus said this, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Referring there, again, to Deuteronomy 24. Uh, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, notice, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we're going to ask and answer a few questions today. Question number one is this. What is God's plan for marriage? What is, let's start in the positive, what is God's plan for marriage. Notice right away in our text that we just read, notice Jesus is pushing back hard against the idea of divorce. Right? He's pushing back hard on this. And why is that? Why does Jesus push so hard again against divorce or the concept or idea of that within his day? Fundamentally, here's why. On the screen for you, Malachi 2 verse 16. Again, here's what it says. Uh, for I hate divorce, says the Lord. It's pretty clear. The God of Israel, and covering one's garment with violence, says, what, what's up with that? Um, in a Jewish wedding ceremony, often a garment would be placed over the wife in marriage. 
signifying the beauty and the meaning of that. So divorce, what it does, instead of having a garment of beauty, now it's a garment of violence that comes upon the wife and the marriage and again and, and the family. Says the Lord of hosts, <clears throat> so take heed to yourselves and do not be faithless because of how much God loves marriage. And then conversely, or just along those lines, how God hates divorce. So serious stuff. Now, why does God feel so strongly about divorce? Well, here's the answer. Because of the hurt, the pain, the suffering that is found, again, within divorce. Just think from God's perspective, right? God designed marriage. Uh, marriage is God's design. It's his invention. It's what he designed for good and for blessing and for the health of society as a whole. So think then, within divorce, it does violence to the most sacred institution on this earth, which, which is marriage, humanly speaking. Divorce brings hurt to most intimate of relationships within the family. Divorce leaves scars that will never fully heal this side of heaven. Divorce contributes to the downfall of society as well. Uh, a major study was conducted by the Center for the Family in Transition in 1971. They interviewed 60 families and pretty comprehensive study in terms they followed them after a year and five years and ten years. And their results were published uh, in several books. Uh, some of their findings uh, was the following. Uh, incredibly, one half of women and one third of men were still intensely angry at former spouses after 10 years. Uh, only one in seven of former couples did the former wife and husband experience stable second marriages. One in seven. Findings revealed that all children... I mean, we know this, but it's, it's just important to acknowledge all children suffer from divorce. On some level, in one way, every child cries out, why me, why me, why? Whether they're allowed to say it or not, they are saying it for sure to themselves. Uh, children testified to intense loneliness, a sense of loss, and feeling less protected, more vulnerable. Um, One-third of children that go through a family of divorce have little to no ambition 10 years later. Uh, fathers... Many fathers have no understanding how rejected their children feel uh, as a result of divorce. And um, the studies um, convincingly show there's a huge blow to boys, especially uh, feeling the rejection of their fathers through the breakup of a marriage. Now, I raise these stats to demonstrate why God hates divorce. Because it's the suffering. He hates to see the suffering in what he created originally, again, for good. Now, let me also say right at this point, too, okay, this highlights the power and the healing that is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, okay? God specializes in making beauty out of ashes, and God specializes in creating joy from mourning, Church, understand, no matter what you've done, where you've been, what's happened within your life, a child that's been through such a situation, listen, there's always hope in Jesus Christ. There's always hope in Jesus Christ. He is the master of taking what is broken and putting it back together again for his glory. It's why he came, it's why he died, it's why he raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is the answer to all our pain. Jesus Christ is the answer in the hope of everlasting life. Jesus Christ is the one who forgives our sins and the only one who can. And millions and millions and millions of people throughout history have found all their hope and their answer and their light and their love 
fully realized in the person of Jesus Christ alone, okay? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. This is who Jesus is. This is the God we serve, and this is what he does. So as tough as some parts of this message is today, we must always, always remind ourselves that our breaking down always points to the one who seeks to put us together again by his grace, his love, and his power. But listen also, okay? This is also why God's design for marriage is to be lifelong monogamous between a man and a woman. It's so interesting too, eh? And so encouraging for me. Do you know another study that was done? Again, a a survey extensively of couples, again, who divorced or who didn't. Um, their founding or their findings reveal that one couple in 1,500, okay, one couple in 1,500 couples who regularly pray together ever end in divorce. Just, just wanted to say that out loud. For those couples who genuinely seek the Lord, who genuinely want his voice to be louder than their own in their life, one out of 1,500 will ever uh, be divorced because the voice of God is louder than their own and the will of God, therefore, is greater than their own. And the vast, 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 vast majority of couples who regularly seek Christ and pray together, they stay married. One in 1,500, I was so encouraged by that. Another crucial text on marriage that we are going to look at today is found in uh, Matthew 19. So I want you to turn there. You can keep a finger in Matthew 5. I want you to turn to uh, Matthew 19. And uh, this is a critical text for us to look at uh, as well. Matthew chapter 19. Yeah, turn. Don't be lazy. Today. Okay, don't be lazy. This is important. I mean, I want you to know where I'm getting this stuff from. I want you to see again in the Word. And uh, today I could put it on the screen for you, but I didn't do that right now at this stage. So I want you to see it for yourself. Okay. Another critical tech, text, Matthew 19 verse 3. Listen to what happens here. A good parallel to our verse in Matthew 5. 19.3, Matthew 19.3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Notice, tested, they're always trying to test Jesus. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered. Look how Jesus pushes back. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I mean, just, man, the theology in this is awesome. Verse 6. So there are no longer two but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man uh, separate. What's very interesting about this, what the Pharisees are testing him with, and the way Jesus responds in the first century, Jewish school of thought was very laxed on views of divorce. Some were closer to again where Jesus will land, others were worlds apart. For instance, one school taught a man may not divorce his wife unless he found unchastity in her, which if it's in the case of what Jesus is saying today is quite close to what we're going to learn today. Um, but other schools of thought, the school of Hillel uh, taught a man may divorce his wife for many reasons, including um, the wife spoiling a dish for him, essentially saying she's a bad cook. Okay? Um, Rabbi Akaba taught that a husband may divorce his wife if he happened to find another one that was more beautiful. Okay? These are the things that were floating around in the first century, and this is kind of what the Pharisees are testing Jesus with. So Jesus pulls out a spiritual hand grenade, throws that into the middle of all that lies, blows it up, and presents the truth in front of them and affirms so powerfully the reality of God's design for marriage 
Again, in verses 3 to 6, are very, very powerful. Let's summarize it this way, okay? Here, as we look at Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6. What do we learn what Jesus teaches on marriage from just these verses, okay? First of all, we, we have clarity. Jesus gives clarity, okay? Listen, everyone, you must understand, okay? Marriage is not a design of man. Marriage is the design of God. God invented, God created marriage, Right, So marriage is a divine institution. If God created marriage, who gets to set the rules? God does. Not society, not governments, not man, not culture, not politics. God decides the rules of marriage. The clarity that Jesus brings right here again with these verses from the beginning. And notice he says, do not know from the beginning, God created male and female. Marriage, again, the clarity of marriage is a man and a woman joined together under God. One man, one woman. Again, married under God in the covenant of that. So clarity Jesus brings. Cleaving, so important, that a man should hold fast to his wife. Hold fast, strongly joined together. Think of a super powerful adhesion. You come together in marriage. You are not to separate, to hold fast through ups and downs, through pain and sorrow, through sickness and in health. It's so critical. Again, we're understanding marriage here, a leaving of mother and father and a cleaving to one another again under God. We see completeness. Love this. No longer two, but one flesh, right? One flesh does include, again, the sexual union of a man and woman coming together, which is astoundingly beautiful, and God's design in the context of marriage is extraordinarily to be celebrated and awesome. But it's more than that. One flesh really means completeness. You know that movie from way back, dates my age a little bit, but Jeremy Maguire, and that, that kind of key line, you complete me. I mean, we kind of, but he's right. Like that was a good line in terms of marriage anyways, in terms of marriage and coming together. A man and a woman come together. They complete one another. They bring their strengths. They're not the same. They bring their differences together and they become one person in that sense as God has designed marriage. Marriage is an awesome, awesome design. Again, only, only God could come up with it. It's so beautiful to understand God. God's designed for this. And then we have covenant. What God has joined together, let no one separate. I mean, it's so important. Again, when marriage happens, you are covenanting under God and covenanting to each other and covenanting to all who are there witnessing your wedding. It is a walk unto death. It's a choice to love, not to feel. It's a choice of the will to love your spouse. A walk unto death. We are making a covenant under God. And our world has butchered this. But the Bible stands and the words of Christ stand and the reality of marriage and its power stands. God's design for marriage is I am covenanting under the Lord what he has joined together. Let no one separate. No institution or whatever might happen get in between the reality of what God has brought together. And then I just wanted to add this. Marriage, of course, is ultimately a symbol of Christ and his church, Ephesians 5. I mean, just think about that. Like the reality of every marriage right now is we are, we are to represent and symbolize Christ married to his church. You can always remember this too, right? Marriage is the ultimate bookends of scripture. 
In Genesis, again, 1 and 2, marriage begins the Bible and marriage ends in the Bible and Christ returns for his bride and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Just incredible. The first cosmos began created with marriage. The second cosmos, again, will be established with Christ returning for his church, his bride. Astounding how important marriage is to the Lord. What is God's design for marriage? It is a beautiful design. It is incredibly important and incredibly beautiful. And that's why every marriage must be passionately fought for. As much as we are able to, we are to fight for under God's command and for his glory to fight for every marriage and to take it as seriously as possible. I wanted to start off with that first question, what is God's plan for marriage? Takes us to question number two now. We get into the the meat of our subject today. Well, when is divorce permitted, though, in Scripture? Maybe start with this. Is divorce permitted in Scripture? Are there any cases where it is? And if so, where and when does that happen? So let's stay in Matthew 19 now, okay? So um, the Pharisees didn't like the answer they got from Jesus. That was kind of too serious and too intense and too restricting. So verse 7, right, Matthew 19, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Look at, look at Jesus' answer. He said to them, well, that's because of your hardness of heart. Basically, that's because of your sin that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Notice, but from the beginning, it was not so. Verse 9, key, 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 verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So, again, notice right away, trying to be as clear as I can today. Again, more of a teach than a preach. I mean, as clear as I can. So divorce was never a part of God's original plan. He says, from the beginning it was not so, right? God established the heavens and the earth. He created Adam and Eve. He set them up. There was no sin in the earth. There was perfect harmony. There's no presence of sin, and divorce was never, never part of God's plan. But then Jesus, he, he clarifies, but it was your hardness of heart. It was because sin entered into the world that now divorce at times became a reality. Because sin is in the word, I mean, marriages will suffer harm. And as marriages suffer violence in terms of sin and impact upon those marriages, then in some cases... Divorce will either be necessary or divorce will be allowed. Again, verse 9 is very critical. Verse 9, I just want to read one more time. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So notice, first of all, church, Jesus shuts down all other uh, reasons for divorce that the teachers around him in that day were, were suggesting. He shuts them all down, man. They're all just tossed aside and illegitimate. The bar just went up big. Notice Jesus states clearly here too, the only legitimate reason for divorce is in the case of sexual immorality, which he directly connects in the same verse, in this case, with adultery. It's the Greek word pornea, which can refer to different levels of sexual morality. In verse 9, again, it's referring very clearly to physical adultery with someone other than your spouse. What's very, very important here, right, is for for those who get divorced for unbiblical reasons... He says here directly that they are committing adultery. What what we need in our day and what is so important is, is we have to see how seriously God takes marriage. 
Uh, we live in a day of great irreverence and, in many cases, blasphemy and taking God so casually and just mocking his word, mocking his commands, just disregarding his holiness. There's so much of that today in the pursuit of self and the desire for pleasure and the wanting of situations to go as we want more than anything else. As I'm saying all these things to men, I, I completely am sensitive to the reality of situations and circumstances and complexities, and we'll get to some of that as we go on here, but we just, I just want us to see we will never ever lose by increasing the seriousness with which we view what God considers the most sacred institution between human beings again on earth, which is marriage. The lack of reverence toward God and marriage within the church even is frightening in our day. Let me say this too, okay? You're here right now, whatever situation that you found yourself in or that you've come with, okay? There is forgiveness for anyone who sincerely approaches Jesus Christ in repentance and confession, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's going on. Again, if you're sitting here like, man, if you knew, if you knew, if I knew, maybe, maybe, maybe so. But listen, if you sincerely approach Jesus Christ by grace, if you sincerely seek him and you admit and confess the things that have done wrong and sinfulness, again, if you approach Jesus for that, you will not be turned away. You will be forgiven. You will know grace. You will know healing. You will know his love and you will know his peace. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus died. And this is why Jesus was raised from the dead. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. And again, he wants to forgive, but, but, again, he doesn't force us. We must admit, we must confess, we must repent, we must come to him and desire to be healed, forgiven, and cleansed, and restored back to a sincere relationship with him and whatever's happened in our past. Again, a lot of different things going on today, a lot of different situations that I have no clue about. Jesus knows everyone perfectly. But you sincerely seek him and the promise is that you will be forgiven for whatever the Holy Spirit brings up again within our lives. Within our text here, within Matthew 19 here, what is clear though, in the case of adultery within marriage, divorce is permitted by the spouse who has been sinned against. I'll say that again. I want to be so clear based on scripture. In the case of adultery within marriage, divorce is permitted by the spouse who has been sinned against. But this is very important here. Hear this one too, okay? Notice this. Jesus allows divorce for adultery. He does not command it. Please hear that. Jesus allows for divorce in the cases of adultery, but he does not command it at all. I mean, I just consider the marriages that have been devastated by sin and different situations over the years, but then, listen, by God's grace, restored by grace. I mean, unbelievable stories of reconciliation and forgiveness. Pain, yes. Hurt, yes. Grief, yes. Loss, yes. But yet the Lord in his grace and power and the humility of those involved and repentance and forgiveness, the amount of situations where sin has come in to destroy and in the end Jesus Christ wins and they remain together and they are unbelievable testimonies of God's grace and how he takes Ashes and turns it into beauty. Over and over and over, I've seen that time and time again. Astoundingly awesome, astoundingly beautiful. Again, this is what Jesus Christ does. Again, be so clear. Divorce is allowed here in this case. It is not commanded uh, in the slightest. So being in Matthew 19, we started in Matthew 5. So I want us to go back now to Matthew chapter 5. You hopefully kept the finger there. It should be easy to return to. 
And just the passage that's very similar to Matthew 19, the one we started with. Look at verse 32 here. Jesus says this. He says, But I say to you, Matthew 5, verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, notice, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Why does he say here, makes her commit adultery? How does that make sense? Well, because in the first century, a woman would be very unlikely to be able to support herself. So this assumes when a man divorces his wife, right, then he would force her to remarry because she couldn't survive without a husband. And in that sense, he makes her commit adultery, divorces her unbiblically, and then makes her do the same. But the blame here is on the husband. The blame is on the one who's divorcing, again, for the wrong reasons or for sinful reasons, I want to be clear as well, but this passage also confirms in Matthew 5, verse 32, that in cases of sexual immorality, which is adultery, is one biblical reason for divorce. Again, it is permitted, it is not commanded. There is one other uh, legitimate exception for divorce that we believe that the scriptures are very clear on. And that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll ask you to turn there, the last place we'll turn together today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Please go, please go, please go. Please turn there. Again, make sure you see what's in front of you. You can mark it up. You can highlight it. You can just, again, make note of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Encourage your neighbor to go there. Again, I want you to see what I'm saying. I want you to see what's in front of us. I want you to know I'm not making this up. Okay, let's just be Bible students. These are exceptionally important issues. Let's make sure we see them together. And don't let me do all the work for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Okay, this is the Apostle Paul now. Okay, essentially what he's doing is he's adding on to the teaching of marriage and divorce and remarriage. Okay, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing the Word of God, right? Uh, he's able to do this because, again, the authority given to him, the Holy Spirit that's writing through him. Verse 10. Chapter 7, 1 Corinthians, verse 10 from chapter 7. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. Why is he saying that, not I but the Lord? He's saying Jesus has previously taught on this subject. In the Gospels, what he's referring to. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And her husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now he's saying, see, I am now, this has not been previously stated by Christ. I am now adding to the teachings on marriage, again, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be in Scripture forever, right? So I, I am adding to the situation that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What is he saying there? I believe this is what he, what this is what he means is that an unbelieving husband, let's say, who is living with a believing wife has a much greater chance under the Christian influence of his wife to be set apart for salvation by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's what he's saying. To, to exist in a home with a spouse that is saved in Jesus Christ, you have a much, much, I mean, stats prove this too, you have a much, much better chance of coming to Christ and coming to salvation, being made holy in that sense. You are set apart because of who you are married to now as opposed to being married to an unbeliever where both of you, again, are not saved uh, in Christ. That's what he is communicating in that regard. Verse 15 is key, very key. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Notice, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you uh, to peace. So again, I'm trying to be as clear as I can today, just to summarize what's, what's happening here. Paul is providing a teaching on marriage that Jesus did not previously address, right? Now, why is that the case? When Jesus is teaching on Matthew 5, Matthew 19, his audience is basically 100% Jewish. Every person in that context, again, um, Jewish people only married other Jewish people within the religious system of Judaism. So there's like never a situation, I guess in the context of Jesus' teaching, where there was an unbeliever being married to a believer. Corinth is a whole different story. Corinth now, the gospel is going out to the nations and lives are getting, you know, turned upside down all over the place. People are even brought to Christ and you have, like we do today, you have many situations where one spouse is saved and the other is not. So now by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we introduce a teaching for all time in regards to the context of a believer being married to an unbeliever. That's why this is happening. That's why Paul says then, he says, I, not the Lord. A new teaching, again, verified by the authority of God and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he starts off by saying this. He's like, if that's your context, a believer is to remain married to an unbeliever as long as the unbelieving spouse is willing to do so. A believer is to, totally clear, is to remain married to an unbeliever as long as the unbelieving spouse is willing to do so. What he adds in verse 15 is, in the case of an unbeliever's deserting of a believing spouse or an unbeliever uh, abandonment of a believing spouse, in this case, he says, the believing spouse is permitted to obtain a legal divorce. We get that from the phrase, they, uh, they are not enslaved. They are no longer bound. They are now deemed as an unmarried person. So again, we believe Scripture is very clear in presenting that today. When a believing spouse is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, and this is key too, okay? And there's no desire for reconciliation apart from the unbelieving spouse. Let's say the unbelieving husband, he leaves zero desire to return. Often there's gross sin involved in that as well. No intent for reconciliation. Sometimes they've taken off and already established new relationships elsewhere. In those cases, we are not going to ask the believing spouse to wait around in vain hope of reconciling. We do believe at that point, and Scripture says, in this case, the believing spouse is permitted to pursue a divorce and then to be married again. And that leads us to our third question, which is this. Well, what about remarriage then? That's kind of a big one too. What about remarriage? Well, to answer this question, let's look at uh, Matthew 19. I'll put this on the screen for you. You've seen it already. But just take a look again and see what's there. Again, very, very key verse. I want us to be good students here. So Matthew 19, verse 9. 
Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, notice this, and, and marries another, commits adultery. So that verse only makes sense with and marries another in there. If you take out and marries another, right, it doesn't make any sense. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality commits adultery. Well, that doesn't make sense because you can divorce your wife, right, but not commit adultery with someone else. And so you have to marry someone else in order to commit adultery. So if you don't marry someone else, then... So if you take that phrase out, so what I'm saying is, in here, um, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, they are connected. Jesus is connecting both of those, again, within the truth of the statement. So to put it another way, hopefully to gain understanding for some of you that are still a little confused, imagine Jesus said it this way. Whoever divorces his wife due to sexual immorality and marries another does not commit adultery. You ha- like, they're connected. Divorcing and, and remarrying are connected in this verse. Whoever divorces his wife due to sexual immorality and then marries another, again, uh, spouse, does not commit adultery. So Jesus is clear here. Divorce and remarriage are allowed in the case of sexual immorality in the form of physical adultery. So to be, again, as clear as we can, remarriage in this case is not Sin. However, in all the cases of unbiblical divorces, that's a different story. And it gets complex, I know. And all the variables and all the situations. But this is where we have to put ourselves before the word of God and the Lord himself. And just to search our hearts and say, Lord, what are you saying And if we find ourselves in situations where the Lord reveals sin, then we confess and repent and we seek to be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ and however that applies to us as well. Now similarly, in the case of 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15 on the screen for you, right? Paul says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved God has called you to peace. So we believe this is a clear indication of no longer being obligated to the marriage in a situation where an unbelieving spouse has deserted or abandoned the other spouse and has no desire to return at all. Divorce is permitted and remarriage is also permitted. We are in good company here. The Westminster Confession of 1646, all these hundreds of years ago, they said it very well. I have one from the past, one from the present in terms of quotes. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Secondly, nothing but adultery. No, no, go back, go back. I'm sorry, go back. Nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can in no way be remedied by the church. That's very, very important. No way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. So he's saying it's just just summarizing everything we're learning today that we believe Scripture teaches so clearly. Present quote by John MacArthur, we can go to that one now. He says this. He says, In God's sight, the bond between a husband and wife is dissolved only by death. That's very important to recognize, okay? Obviously, when a spouse dies, then we are free to remarry. Only by death, adultery, and an unbeliever's leaving. When the bond or bondage is broken in any of those ways, a Christian is free to remarry. And this is key. Throughout Scripture... 
wherever legitimate divorce occurs, remarriage is assumed. Where divorce is permitted, remarriage is permitted. The key here is wherever legitimate divorce occurs, then remarriage is assumed. Understanding again what the Bible is teaching us on such important topics. Now, just kind of nearing the end of, of, of the message here, a topic that's come up increasingly in recent decades has been what about, what about situations of abuse? Tough. Um, the Bible doesn't explicitly deal with divorce and abuse. You won't be able to find, in my mind, and that the elders believe here, to find a scripture that can point to that exact issue. So we must be careful in what we're going to say that the Bible is not abundantly clear on. However, that being said, physical abuse is something we take incredibly serious here as a church. And in cases of clear abuse, we will strongly without hesitation, advise separation and safety um, right away. We must. It's absolutely paramount, the protection and care and safety of the spouse who is in such a difficult situation. After protection and safety has been established, and that is clear, and we believe that the spouse who is in a vulnerable and or family for that matter is in a place of protection and safety then we seek to assess next steps of care and wisdom and possible reconciliation but let me add here to you man these situations of abuse they did not happen in a day they often happen for many years and years and years and it is not fixed in a day they often take months years again to sort out and their patience and the steadfastness of understanding what's happened. And then in the case, again, to see the one who has been delivering the abuse, there must be a true repentance. There must be true confession. There must be tremendous contrition. There must be brokenness. There must be a complete evidence that the Lord is at work and the sin has been owned and change has been established. Very, very difficult. Very, very complex. To say that today, again, to assure you that as elders and pastors of the church, how seriously we take, again, situations of clear abuse and desiring, again, to make sure that all are protected and safe, again, as legally required. And, of course, as we believe that Scripture instructs in terms of no situation like this should ever be tolerated in terms of asking someone to stay within it. And situations of abuse in this church will not be tolerated at all, zero, 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 as whatever power we have and the ability to, uh, to protect and the ability to enter in and make sure that these situations are safe and secure. Let me just say too that every, every situation that we're discussing today comes with immense complexity. I would say personally, the hardest situations to dealt with over decades of ministry now, I think the elders and pastors would agree to, is really cases of complexity of marriage. Um, the variables, the situations, the past, the history, the he said, she said, the on and on and on and on, trying to, there's not a clear cut, you know, once for all, every situation you're in there, it is, it is exhausting. Uh, the resources that they take up are immense and they come with tremendous, you need tremendous wisdom and discernment and care and grace and love and patience. God help us. In light of everything that we've talked about today too, just want to put up a, 
a slide for soul care. This is the greatest entry point of our church of deciding where you can be best cared for. Uh, strongly encourage you to take advantage um, as the entry portal of like the ministries we have, the biblical counselors we have, the pastors and leaders and elders we have, the, the different ministries, all that. Where would you best be cared for in terms of your situation? Starting entering through soul care is the best way to do that um, in our church. Just really, really encourage you. And by the way, too, like, obviously, like, the elders are ultimately responsible for members of Hope Bible Church. We don't believe we give an account to those who are not members. We believe that's what the Bible teaches on the church. We want to love those, all those who are committed to Hope Bible Church. But we strongly encourage you, like, membership is important in this regard. Because it helps us understand who we're dealing with. And it gives us, again, a sense of authority over different situations. Really, really tough stuff, but really, really important as well. But all those who call this church their home and are intending to move towards membership, we want to be able to care for you as best we can as the Lord allows through all the different means, again, within our church. So just to end our message today, let's ask one more question. What is, what is God's heart in all of this? Let's just maybe recap in some ways, but also affirm some other things. God, uh, let's affirm his heart. God, God, God loves marriage. His design, it's a divine institution. He is so passionate about a man and a woman joined together for life in humility and grace. But also we acknowledge that God hates divorce. Why? Because of the suffering. It was never designed that way. Divorce, the pain, we heard about that. We understand that. We don't want that at all costs. It is necessary at times. The last thing that we want to see happen, though, um, God loves submission to his word. This is so important, eh? Because what happens in our day is like, well, forget what God says. I'm going to do what I want to say. See, the genuine Christ follower filled with the Holy Spirit believes, I say that, I said this this week. I say it a lot. God, your will is the best will. Therefore, I want your will. Right? I, I believe that. Do you believe that? Like I believe God, your will is the best will. I don't know what's best for me. You do. Your will is the best will. Therefore, I want your will because you know best. I may not choose it. I may not like it. But your will is obviously the best plan for my life. So therefore, how do I find your will? Your word. Your word. Your word is the single greatest way for me to know what your will is. And your will is always the, the best plan for my life. That's what the Christ follower says. What you say, Lord, I desire to do. I want to submit under your word, even if it's like a cost of my pleasure, the cost of my desire, the cost of what I think is going to make me feel best, whatever it is, I trust you, you know best. That takes humility, man, but that's where path of blessing and joy come from. God's plan is always, always best. He always has the best intentions and best plan for his children, 100% of the time. God loves healing and restoration. All the situations represented today, the complexities, man, what God can do with lives and hearts that are fully surrendered to him and saying, not my will, but your will be done. What he can do with hearts that do that, wow, 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 wow. And lastly, listen, God loves you. He loves you. I want you to hear that, man. Again, this is why Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose from the dead. He loves you. No matter your situation, no matter your circumstance, no matter your background, no matter your sin, no matter what happened. Again, he loves you. But listen, listen, I said it, but he won't make you. He invites you. He loves you. But you have to trust him. You have to surrender to him. You have to believe in him. You have to go to him. You have to allow him to take over. You can't be like, yeah, Lord, I'll do it my way for most of the time. And when I get help or when I need you, I'll kind of cry out to you. No, 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 no. He drives, man. He drives. You give him the keys. He's, he's the one on the steering wheel. He loves you. He loves you. He forgives you. He graces you. 
He restores you. He's the only one who can heal you. But again, what happens, church? What happens, church? So many of us, we run in the other direction. But today again, he chases us down because he loves you. He loves you, but it can't be you. It's got to be him. It can't be your way. It's got to be his. It can't be like half and half. It's got to be all of him. You got to receive his love. You got to receive his grace. You got to bow to his will. And then listen, promise, not ease, promise joy, promise grace, promise life, promise healing, promise purpose, promise hope. The hope of the world without sin and death and pain and no divorce and eternal love in the face of Jesus Christ. Yes, please sign me up. He wants to bless you. Why? Because he loves you. But listen, you got to surrender. We got to surrender. God help us. Amen, church? Let's pray. Let's pray. God help us. Oh, God help us. So much here. So much here. Um, we, just, we have a prayer right now, Lord, in Jesus' name over this church family and over the families in this church family, over the marriages here, Lord, over the singles in our church, Lord, over those who have been through pain and hurt. In Jesus' name, comfort them now. Draw near, Lord, would you please draw near as only you can. All sin is forgiven when confessed. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. I beg you for the next generation, young people, desiring to be married. It is a wonderful, awesome, beautiful institution. It is to be approached with sobriety and trembling and seriousness. The design of God, a walk unto death. Absolutely beautiful when trusted in you. Help us, Lord, against so many situations. May you minister to each one. I pray you have been doing and you will continue to do that now. And even as we sing the song, I pray for blessing. Blessing over families and blessing over marriages and blessing over children. May it, may it be so. We need you so much. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.